Welcome to an original series. I am Patch, and this is the podcast. So let me do that again. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. You have to leave that in. I'm going to do this over again. <laughs> well, this is the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. As I've said before, I'm Patch, and I'm one of your co-hosts. And with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, it's my friend and co-host, Adam. Hello, Patch. It's, it's good to uh, good to be back. Man, I hope I don't flood the rest of the episode with that. That's crazy. <laughs> when you run two podcasts, you get your stuff backwards. And so I'm just like, let's hope we just get through this without messing up even more. I'll just try to edit it as much as I can. Or not. I, I, it makes I it think, fun. I think you, know, you get, you get all, the, all the flubs out of the way in the beginning, <laughs> and you're good to go. That's right. Well, we are in season two. And we are on episode nine. This is the finale, the season finale of Stranger Things 2. I will tell you, this did not disappoint. This had the same kind of punch that I believe season one's finale did. Left me with a similar feeling of, I'm ready to just hit that play button. Not going to do it, though. <laughs> not going to do it. As Dana Carvey used to say. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. Good stuff. Uh, yeah, this was a great episode. I mean, I and I have to say, I think it's the... Up until this point, two seasons in, it's the longest runtime of any Stranger Things episode. It cracked the 60-minute mark, just barely, but uh, there hasn't been up until this point. I think there was one episode that was like 58 minutes long, and this, I think, is uh, a little over an hour. But it doesn't feel long because of the pacing and everything that's happening. It it really flies by. Yeah, Yeah. that's something I wanted to bring up was that there are lots of scenes in this show. And... I will say there are lots of scene transitions. There weren't like multiple locations, even though there were several. But as the episode started really ramping up its energy, we got a lot of popping back and forth, back and forth from like three different areas, which really just changed the energy of the episode. I mean, it was definitely tense from start to finish, but there are certain sections in this episode where I felt like my hands are getting tighter is somebody else going to die? Because apparently the Duffer Brothers have no problem letting people that we deeply care about, even for a short while, die on us. Barb, Bob, Brenner. We see what we're doing here. We know. We talked about him in our last episode. Benny. Yes. See? Well, I mean, we didn't really care for, about him. but Stop it. We did. I'm going to say that we did. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good guy. Anyway. But yeah, so much uh, so much good with the pacing, and I think that um, for a finale, it had everything that I needed. It had questions answered, it had resolution, and like any good horror movie that's going to have a sequel, it had a stinger to really kind of get us going like, all right, what questions do we have? And we'll ask those questions at the end of this episode conversation. That's right. yeah. And again, written and directed by the Duffer Brothers, so they're back. Mm-hmm. And I would say, we've talked about this before, how a lot of these episodes almost feel like two-parters. This definitely feels like the second part of a two-part finale, where everything kind of wraps up. And one thing I'll mention is that, much like the season finale of the first season, this episode also it kind of ends about two thirds of the way into the hour. And then there's sort of this coda, you know, this kind of extra 
section of the aftermath. It's not quick. You know, there's a good chunk of maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes, I would say, where we, we kind of see sort of where everybody is. I liked that. I liked that after all this tension, after all this death and all this destruction, that we had a chance to kind of just be with these characters outside of a sort of edge of your seat experience. Yeah, it's the the refrain or the coda, the the aftermath, I think is is very satisfying for both the first and second seasons. I don't know what's going to happen with the third, fourth, and fifth, because I haven't seen them yet. But if this is the formula, I think for us as an audience, it gives us a little bit of a reprieve. There are jokes that are sort of paid off in this section, and it just makes for a nice kind of <sighs> to finish it off. Now, obviously, when you have a stinger like the Duffer Brothers put in for both of these, it doesn't diminish the aftermath. It just reminds us that we're not done yet. We're not done. Right. So it does make me think once their last season is finished, are we going to get a refrain if they're still using the same kind of formula? Or are we going to get a hint of like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. I think with this ending and, you know, we're kind of speaking ahead of ourselves, but I think with this particular ending, it was more deliberate to say, yeah, while this story's done, we're not done. Yeah. And it's kind of nice because you just get to see, it's a kind of a bookend you know, approach with the beginning of this season where, you know, the kids are just being kids. They're going to the arcade and having a great time and going to school. And, and here we have that kind of same coda where they're just kids again. All the scary stuff is over with for now. And we're just seeing where their lives go. I like that. I think that's nice. It, as you said, it's a nice little bit of a breather after we've gone through this traumatic experience with them. <laughs> so, right. so let's get into that traumatic experience. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. The The cold open for this was really interesting because I felt like it was more of a soft cold open yeah. where there wasn't something coming out of a tunnel with crazy arms. There wasn't like a <laughs> scary jump scare to kind of get us into it. It was really kind of a continuation of Elle and Mike looking at each other, just enjoying the fact that they are now together. Like, as we talked about at the end of the last episode, Mike has been in a lot of pain and he's been kind of a butthead for good reasons because he misses Elle. And now we get the extension of that initial, like, oh my gosh, Elle is back with him. So being able to see her was both satisfying and what we saw after that was just as satisfying, which is Hopper basically saying, yeah, I kept her from you. Let's talk alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I just want to add here that Hopper gets a bit physical with Mike here. And he's yes, kind of a he little bit of a jerk in the beginning. He kind of turns it around and is able to explain himself. But Hopper's he's a hothead. He's an angry guy as well. You know, he if you look at his history, he's lost his daughter, all of this. He's not the easiest person to get along with, I would say. He he got a little rough with Mike though. I just have I just wanted to add <laughs> <He> that. <did. laughs> I kept thinking and I don't know why. I must just be demented, but I kept thinking like this is what Mr. Belding from Saved by the Bell would act like <laughs> if given an R rating. Like he would be, "Hey, hey, hey, what is going on here?" and he, he would grab Zach by the shirt and just throw him up against the lockers. Right. That's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> Beyond the physical altercation, I like the way that Hopper handled himself. 
both of these guys were so justified in the way in which they reacted. Hopper was not just trying to calm him down, but he was trying to say, I get it. I get it. And the more amped up that Mike got, the more Hopper said, okay, okay. It's not like he said, you're wrong. It's not like he said, I did it for your own good. Maybe he did. But the way in which he actually interacted with Mike looked as though he was trying to tell him, look, yell at me. It's my fault. It's not her fault. Just take it out on me. And Mike just goes on a verbal rampage until eventually he just falls into Hopper's arms and just lets him embrace him. I think Mike needed that kind of reaction to be able just to let it all out. And I don't know that there was necessarily a resolution. I think there was just an understanding between both of them that Mike and Hopper sort of mutually understood why they were both in the wrong and in the right. And a lot of that kind of forgiveness and resolution and restoration plays itself out in different pockets throughout the episode, which I thought was really kind of cool. There's some bigger moments of restoration, but there's also some smaller moments of restoration with different characters. And this is what I think the Duffers have going for them is this ability to pay off things, not only mythologically, but also from a character standpoint where we understand why people are the way they are. And if there's tension, it eventually gets resolved in a certain way. We talked a little bit about this on the last episode. Here, I think we get some of that resolution with some of those characters, and I appreciated that. Yeah, and it's interesting watching them in this scene because they are obviously at odds, but they're also highly emotional. And as you said, they kind of embrace towards the end and, and hug each other. And it's almost like Hopper is more of a father figure to Mike right now than his own father has been in recent years, because I can't even imagine Mike having any kind of interaction as emotional as this with his fall asleep on the recliner dad, you know, who's (laughs) a waste of space. So Mike doesn't have the best fatherly figure or role model, I guess you could say, uh, in his life. And maybe he needs Hopper to kind of be there for him as well. I hope that we get more of that. I hope that that kind of fleshes itself out as the series goes on, that kind of relationship between Mike and Hopper. If we do, we do. If we don't, we don't, because he's got his relationship with Elle, which has been really interesting throughout the season. It's funny how none of these boys, really, if you think about it, none of the four main characters either have fathers or are have very absent fathers in their lives. They're not involved. It's interesting that I just sort of thought about that. Yeah, Lucas is probably the closest, right? but his dad doesn't have a lot of screen time. And when he does, he is there for sort of funsies where yeah, he basically yeah, yeah. says, mom, <laughs> where's the pants in the family? You're right. I think there is something significant about the fact that each of these kids is absent of that kind of male figure. I don't know that Hopper does that for all of them, but I think no. he represents this idea of a type of man. And I think Bob's the same way in, yeah. in a lot of ways. And I think that was sort of made known when Mike described him as the founder of the AV club, this respect that you have for a man who didn't have a gun by his side all the time, who didn't have the sheriff's hat, who didn't have the masculineness that I think is defined in one way. His masculinity was defined in a different way. And it was by his brain. His intellect. It was by yeah. his, his emotional intelligence with mm-hmm. Joyce and with Will and with Jonathan. And I think that's something really, really cool about what the Duffers are doing here is that they have the ability to show these father figures in such different lights. So you have this great contrast of Hopper, who on paper is a failed father. He is he's divorced. His daughter has passed away. It's not his fault. But he really is, to himself, a black hole. Right. And yet, when we watch him with these kids, 
because of his past, maybe inspired by that, he is sort of forming this needed fatherly bond with them, particularly with Mike in this scene. It really kind of opens up this what does a father look like? What is a father's role? A father can look like Hopper. It could look like Bob. Hopefully it doesn't look like Mike's dad because <laughs> we have way too many people that live life in the recliner. And yeah. I've been that way. And it's reminded me <laughs> that I need to get out of the recliner and spend time with my son. Yeah, yeah you could you could spend time. In, uh, I, I love my recliner, but, you know, it's uh, a- after the kids are asleep. No problem. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. In the meantime, or meanwhile, we have Elle who is uh, looking at Dustin without his braces, something that I'd forgotten that he was wearing braces in season one, so it's been a while since he's seen him. She touches his mouth, and he makes that awkward growl. <laughs> and he does it several times in this episode, which... He does, and and he gets appropriate responses to it, yes. too, Adam. <laughs> yeah. Like... I'm in support of everybody that makes the comments that they do in this episode about that. (laughs) Max tries to befriend Eleven, and she's like, nope. And she just kind of walks through and starts talking to Joyce. We get that reminder of that great motherly bond that Joyce had from season one. I think we talked about that. Mm -hmm. She filled in those gaps that Eleven was missing because Mama wasn't around. Not her fault. But she was absent that motherly figure. All she had was Papa. And I, I think that's a really cool, tender moment where she's able to hug Joyce. And this is also where we sort of get the mission as it plays out that Elle's mission is to close the gate. It's kind of a grown-up moment where Joyce is as much of a motherly figure as she is. She also knows that Elle has the power to do some supernatural things. And so she asks, and then um, we get that shot of down below that sort of threaded gate with the silhouetted creature and the demodogs are like right front and center. I'm like, yeah, this is great. And then <laughs> the credits roll. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you know, in the credits, I just, I haven't brought this up yet, but I just have to say that I think you say her name, Cara Buono. Uh, she's the actress who plays Mike and Nancy's mom. She's like barely in the season, although she has a great scene that we'll get into in this episode. She's barely in the season, but she has her own sole title card in the opening credits in every episode. And all the kids share, like they, they have uh, shared cards. So like there's two of the uh, child actors together on a card. So really? I just think it's amazing. She must have had a great agent to negotiate for her way back when I get a sole title card regardless of how much screen time i have which is very little if you think about the season like she gets a little she pops in here and there this episode probably has her very best scene where she's playing it for laughs and i think she does a great job and we'll get into that momentarily i I just (laughs) i just sort of didn't think about this until this episode that wow she's getting her own card and she's really not in it that much she's a very minor character and relatively unimportant character if you think about it in the yeah like you could remove her from the entire show and it would still work you know anyway the kids need parents though you know they need they can't be you know they're not raising themselves so it's understandable they need to have they need to have somebody at home well if you're billy and max they are i mean they don't have parents so that experiment's been running pretty well for the last eight episodes yeah (laughs) but you're right she 
has probably her best performance in this episode in that scene following the credits where she's in the bathtub and the candles are burning romantically and she is reading a book called Heart of Thunder. I looked this up. It is an actual book from 1983. And I think it's a follow-up to a debut book by the author. I don't remember what the author's name was, but she's reading it. I thought it was fake. I thought it was just like, yeah, throw away. But nope, the Duffers <laughs> come through again. It's an actual book. Ted, her husband, is doing what he does best, and that's hanging out in the recliner, sleeping very soundly to the point where, if I remember correctly, his recliner is off to the side of where the door is. So he would hear this doorbell. He's close to it. Right. And so I think he's in a deep enough sleep that he's just compl- maybe again, maybe he had what Will took last episode. I don't know. Maybe that stuff's going around. I don't know. But he was out. And so she gets frustrated. She gets out of the bathtub, clearly based off of how she is dressed, the fact that she's in a bathtub with romantic candles, she is very deprived romantically. <laughs> and so it makes this moment where she answers the door with Billy awkward, hilarious. Like I had all sorts of feelings from this moment. I was like, what am I watching? Is this, is this getting into soft core stuff? Is this, yeah, where are like the biting your lip and <laughs> I mean, the- <laughs> she's, she's wet from the bathtub. Yeah. It's, it's so, ugh. and he's kind of playing. I mean, here he is the bad boy, but he's, I have to say he's doing a good job of playing kind of like a good bad boy. You know what I mean? I don't know how to say yeah. it, but like just he's not just being a jerk. He's like totally flirting with her and totally playing to the fact that she's kind of a bored housewife. Yes. And he can sense it. He's got some kind of sixth sense that he can detect when a, a housewife is in need of flirtation. <laughs> it's just I kept hearing the word cougar in my head. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. What made this awkward is that she wasn't really feeling or showing that this made her feel uncomfortable. Like, this is a teenager. Right. But, of course, he's dressed looking a little older. And he looked he looked clean. Like, he didn't look, like, disheveled like he has normally looked with the cigarette in his mouth. And you're right. His approach to her was very flirtatious, convincing. The way the music changed, I was like, what? Are they going to have a little rendezvous? Because please don't. This is not the show for that. If there's a spinoff with Billy and Mike's mom, that's just (laughs) going to get weird. So I'm hoping that none of that's happening. All joking aside, I mean, it's a great scene. And it really, I think, is played for laughs. But we do see Billy's sort of ability to convince, ability to sort of persuade. Of course, being deprived, that doesn't help the situation. But she ends up giving him directions to the buyer house. And, you know, she ends that conversation by saying, it's dark, so be careful. Like, you're not talking to him like a kid. You're like, because someday you'll want to come back here and you and I may have a romantic rendezvous. And he eats that cookie as he leaves. And I'm like, ooh. Yeah, he he ate that cookie very seductively. He did. uh, And and I I will say that you just said uh, how he he looked clean. And I was thinking, oh, well, that makes sense because – in the last episode, he was getting ready for a date. Right. So he was yeah. he was looking his best for his date. But then his obviously his father came home and yelled at him and you know told him to go find his sister. So it all kind of you know makes sense. I I just have to say I, I looked this book up because you made me curious. This book, Heart of Thunder. Here's a one line synopsis. <laughs> no man had ever dared to force his attentions on stunning, fiery Samantha Kinsley until 
Hank Chavez, the rough-hewn, insolent outlaw, arousing the spirited Hellion's wrath and her passion. I might have to check this out. Sounds <laughs> no, pretty good. don't do that. <laughs> you would have lost my respect if you did that. <laughs> Just replace Chavez with Billy, and I think you've it's got, got a, a lot of, uh, of what just lot happened of five-star reviews. Hmm. <laughs> no, I, I, I take that back. It's got three five-star reviews. That's it. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> and on one of them is from Mike's mom, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it must have been... Uh, uh, I mean, like you said, the Duffers must have done some research and found, oh, this was a hot book for, you know, the Board Housewives back in 1984. I mean, it's, there's got to be some accuracy as to why they selected this particular book. Anyway, enough of More that. questions to ask the Duffers, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's got we'll good, a... good book cover art, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. Okay. Anyway, so we've moved on. Thankfully, to the uh, to the buyer house, and yeah. Dustin is still teaching about how to form compound words as if he's on Sesame Street. This time to Hopper, and nobody cares because you know the world's coming to an end, and we don't really care about compound words. And then Joyce realizes that Will needs to become uninhabitable. This is something that I've noticed this season. Joyce is very intuitive. She is making these kinds of bold conclusions. I think it has to do with just her experience from season one. I mean, we sort of jokingly said that she's gone crazy in season one, rightly so, because her son is missing. I think that over the course of the series, this is something else I want to find out is, does she get stronger? Is she kind of like Adrian in the Rocky films where she just gets stronger as the movies go on, where she becomes not in that same kind of relationship, obviously, but this idea of her character becoming less timid, more confident, more understanding and, and just able to take more of the, she can emotionally deal with more than she she ever thought she could prior to the events of season one. And, yeah. 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 And I also think, I'll just add that I think that she's very good at figuring things out, especially if they pertain to the sort of well-being of her son, right? It seems like yeah. her motherly instincts give her almost a superpower <laughs> to, to solve these particular problems before them yeah for sure so there's definitely some motivation there that i think fuels that we agreed that she would be great in an escape room as long as will was in danger so (laughs) right we'll keep that in the back of our heads that if we were doing an escape room we need to bring will along and then i guess uh get him possessed by smoke monsters so just a food for thought there anyway so yeah she comes to that realization and hopper directs them to take him to his cabin where quote he doesn't know about, which is a great move, you know, because the yep. buyer house is obviously a hot spot, a hot bed for all kinds of paranormal activity. <laughs> the fact that they went there to begin with was just sort of, uh, I, don't, I mean, they could have taken him, I mean, they could have gone to the police station anywhere, right? Where sure. where Will would not be as familiar and they, t- <laughs> they took him to the, his house. <laughs> and anyway. Why don't you just go to Fort Byers while you're at it? That's, yeah, exactly. That's perfect. <laughs> And then there's a scene that was kind of confusing at first. There's this digging through trash. Uh, Nancy, I think, uh, is digging through it with Steve. And I was trying to figure out what was going on. So I had two thoughts. One, I figured it out. Obviously, they're getting space heaters and stuff for taking to the cabin, as we find out later. Great idea. But the bigger question I have, Adam, is was that normal that you'd have just a trash pile in the back of your house of like well, things it- that you don't get rid of? I don't know what that was. 
So yeah, that that was actually right as they were cleaning out the shed. They were taking all the junk out of the shed, all the old stuff that they had just piled up and stored in there, and just throwing it into like a heap, you know, in the back in the in the yard. So I think they just were rummaging through that for anything that they could use. And and if you if you notice when Nancy and uh, Steve are kind of rummaging through, it's sort of like again a very quick moment. But Steve kind of picks up a balled up pile of christmas lights from the first season and kind of puts it back down so obviously the shed was just where they they put everything all their seasonal decorations and heaters and whatever else that they don't use on a regular basis gotcha so yeah that thank you for that so this is a product of watching these episodes late at night after we record is that my (laughs) attention is sort of shot and sometimes they are just such quick cuts or you might be thinking about the shot that you just saw and you just one shot doesn't register right away so i yeah i totally get yeah it. yeah in my head i was thinking is this just something that people did in the 80s where they just <laughs> threw their trash out into a big pile and like well no, dude they no. just emptied out the shed you dork yeah well i have to say growing up in central pennsylvania there were a fair number of people who just had a lot of trash on their front lawn so uh you know like old broken down pickup trucks and <laughs> so I, I you know it's not unrealistic that there could be people that live that way. But in this particular case, it, it was indeed being stored yeah. in the shed. Yeah. I mean, historically, the buyer house has not been the most pleasant place to live. No. I mean, even if the government did make it look clean again after right. the events of the first season, I mean, it's just, it's little more than a shack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's wouldn't have a lot of fair market value today. I don't think <laughs> this is a, an interesting moment that I kind of alluded to earlier where you sort of get a little bit of reconciliation in an indirect way. I feel like this is this conversation with Nancy and with Steve was maybe Steve's way of letting Nancy go emotionally. So he Mm. tells her to go with Joyce and Jonathan and she's like, no, 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 no. And he's like, look, I may not have been the best boyfriend, but I'm definitely a killer babysitter for these kids. And he said, it's okay, Nance. It's okay. And I think when he says that, I think what he means is, I understand why we broke up. I understand that we're not at this point meant to be together. I don't know for sure if he sees the connection that she has with Jonathan. But if that's the case, then that just adds more kudos to Steve for me, because I feel like that's an incredibly mature thing to do yeah. in that he sort of understands. His heart's breaking a little bit, but I really feel like this moment, along with the quick scene near the end of the episode, is sort of his way of saying, okay, it hurts right now, but I understand. Yeah, yeah. I feel like he still cares for her, maybe loves her, but he also logically realizes they're just not really compatible and they probably never will be and that's okay but it doesn't change that he doesn't want to protect her and doesn't want her to be happy however whoever she needs to be with or wherever she needs to go in in life he wants to make sure she's happy and and healthy and and taken care of and just like the first season they're leaving and then mike and l they share a little tender moment before she and hopper head out to almost kiss Almost kiss. Almost Definitely kiss. Definitely an 80s thing. An 80s almost kiss that yeah. we see. <laughs> of course, Hopper interrupts it. Yeah. Hopper, what a jerk. Black <laughs> hole. <laughs> I will also note that uh, there is no peeling out from a stop here, as we've seen earlier in the season. I hadn't been noticing them, but I'm sure there were others, but 
in this particular moment, even with the urgency of what they were doing, they were quietly backing up and leaving the yeah. firehouse. Although Billy did peel out from Mike and Nancy's house when she when he was yes. hit, hitting on their mom. And, and she, as you said, drive safe. It's dark out there. And he's like, always. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly he, Eating the he doesn't. <laughs> Pervert. Whatever. <laughs> so, so gross. But he doesn't back up. He just peels out, which he just, just normally, out, yeah. that's, that's what he does. And so the scene ends there with that cool shot of the, uh, the babysitter's club at the buyer's house. And then a great close-up of Mike, who in that moment, what I felt from him was, I just got you back and now you're leaving again. Oh my gosh, please don't die. I think that's really what's going on in his head. He understands why, but he's devastated. Good nonverbal from, from him. Thought it was great. Yeah. Good job, Finn, for that one. Yeah. And then uh, we're kicking over to Hopper's car. There is a really cool rhythm with the way in which they're talking to sort of catch up. And I love how it plays itself out as she's talking about how she got to Mama's house. How'd you get there? A truck. A truck? A big truck. A big truck. Whose truck was it? A man's. A man's. A nice man. I don't know. There's something cool about that where... In some ways, like in a normal father-daughter relationship that doesn't have supernatural tendencies attached to it, or a girl who is still learning how to communicate, that would be a translation of a daughter who just doesn't want to talk to her dad, who's giving those short answers. Like, how was school? Fine. What'd you learn? Nothing. It's yeah. that kind of rhythm that I think is played here, but it's played in a way that we understand where she's actually giving the answers. She's not hiding anything. She's just giving him direct answers. And he's not getting mad. It's not like he's saying, why don't you talk to me? No, he understands her rhythm. He understands how they communicate. I mean, they talk through Morse code. So there's a simplicity to that conversation that reveals a lot. And so for Hopper, it's revealed to him that she got in the truck and a nice man took her to mama's house where he assumes that she is done up in makeup and a new hairstyle from from Aunt Becky. Right. And that's that's the interesting part is that she does answer him, like you said, in a very direct and short manner and tells the truth, but she doesn't volunteer anything additional that he doesn't specifically ask her. So she does not go into, at least that we're shown, anything about the lost sister episode and mm -hmm. Chicago and how she's learned how to use her powers even more than she has in the past. And that's interesting, you know, so she's in that way, she's being a typical teenage kid where she's not going to give anything more than she has to. But it also, I think, goes with just who her character is. She's a person of few words, always. And yeah. she probably doesn't quite know how to explain what she experienced in Chicago with that group, because clearly they were doing something illegal. And here's Hopper, a police officer, her sort of conscience knows that what she was a part of was probably not a good thing and maybe that's a chapter that she'll just keep to herself <laughs> yeah and she's not blind to it because in that whole scene both she and hopper really are owning up to their mistakes mm -hmm. l for leaving and hopper for lying i also think that when she refers to both him and her as acting stupid i think that's what she's referring to as going off to chicago and right kind of without participating specific, in, you know, without saying specifically what she did that was stupid she's acknowledging right. that she yeah. made some mistakes yeah right and this is also where hopper reveals sarah to 11 this is another interesting writing moment 
he refers to Sarah in the first person. Sarah's my girl. She's my little girl. Again, I've never lost a daughter or son, and I hope that never happens. But I wonder if, as a parent, when you lose a child, if you refer to them in the present, like, yeah, she's my daughter, he's my son, instead of saying he was. Right. I don't know if that was for effect. I don't know if that's what parents who've lost their children, how they, they refer. But I thought it was very revealing that he refers to her as gone, but not dead. He never says that she died. He just says she left. That's when he goes into the whole bit about being a black hole, mm-hmm. that the black hole got her. And he says, I've been scared that it would take you too, referring to Eleven. So I thought the way that he talks about Sarah and the way that he sort of connects her and Eleven to each other in an indirect way, I think it's very respectful that he's not trying to say that Eleven is a replacement for Sarah, that nothing can replace her, but that he, in his relationship with Sarah and the things that he's lost, whether he sees them as his fault or not, he doesn't want those things to affect his relationship with Elle. And I think that's where this sort of apology and reconciliation stems from, is that he knows her importance. He knows Elle's importance. And I think it's what fuels him later on as he starts making other decisions (laughs) as the episode goes on. Yeah, and I like how he revealed her. It felt like he didn't mean to say her name. Like he wasn't consciously or intentionally planning to tell Elle about his daughter in this scene, that it just kind of came out. And I think that's really interesting because he does perhaps still feel like she's there, you know, with him or perhaps frozen in time. I think sometimes when people lose a loved one, they aren't truly gone. They just stay the age they were in their minds when they were still alive. So maybe he still sees her as not with him, but still kind of out there somewhere. Just not that he doesn't have a way of communicating with her, but that somehow her presence is still alive. Absolutely. um, In in whatever capacity, you know, whether it's sort of spiritually or, you know, Mm -hmm. that she's in heaven or whatever, you know, however people want to interpret that. I feel like that's maybe where he's coming from. Yeah, I could see that for sure. And when we grieve the loss of a child, I would imagine that that's kind of the thing is that there's going to always be sort of a static presence of their last moments, the good memories. It doesn't prohibit you moving on. Right. I think it definitely puts a, I'm going to use the word obstacle, but it's not the best word in the way of not wanting to replace. And it may be similar to when you have two parents and maybe one of the parents passes away the mom or the dad remarries. And for the child, it makes it challenging because the stepfather or stepmother never wants to replace that relationship. And it's hard. I think that's what makes, and what you see on in stories and movies and television about those hard relationships between step parents and children is that there's this natural tendency for the child to think, oh, you just want to be my dad. You can't be my dad. Nobody can be my dad, but my dad. And I think a similar thing happens here. I think that's what Hopper sees is that he doesn't want Elle to feel like she's trying to replace his daughter or vice versa, that it's a new relationship and it's a relationship that he is learning from and trying to do better and do right, knowing that he made mistakes. And I think it just, it reveals at the end of that scene when they hold hands that they both sort of accepted the fact that mistakes were made. Now we can move forward. We can trust each other. And I like that that handhold sort of comes back and forth in the episode, that it's a significant thing where they are intimately connected as father figure and daughter figure. I don't want to say father and daughter, right? maybe I will, as the episode (laughs) sort of hints at us, but 
it's neat and it's very gentle and I like that it takes place in his truck on a dark mm-hmm. highway traveling towards Hawkins lab because I think that anywhere else it wouldn't feel as sort of intimate and and uh, and quiet. Yeah. And I would just add that I think this scene and maybe this whole season between the two of them is really about Hopper realizing that he doesn't want to lose her as well. He's just so terrified, like you said, using the black hole analogy. He doesn't want to let her get sucked into that black hole as well. And and so he's just everything, all his actions, everything he's been doing, good and bad. <laughs> this is why I think he's acknowledging his mistakes. It's all been because he doesn't want anything to happen to her. And the irony being that she's probably more able to protect herself <laughs> than than Hopper is, you know, with her abilities. True, yeah. But yeah, and anyway, this is a nice, uh, we get a nice shot of them kind of driving off towards the lab. And then uh, the next scene's hilarious because they cut to Dustin and Steve essentially <laughs> trying to empty out the refrigerator at the buyer's house and stuff the demodog, the dead one that Elle threw through the glass, you know, and I guess broke its neck, shove it into oh, wow. the refrigerator for for scientific <laughs> reasons. Dustin, you know, yeah. always the scientist as you yeah. always say, he's, I think Dustin says, This is a groundbreaking scientific discovery. We can't just bury it like some common mammal, okay? It's not a dog. All right, all right. <laughs> you, gotta, you know, and, and in a way, this could be really helpful in terms of their ability to fight these creatures in the future. They have to, you know, they got to dissect this thing, figure out what are its weaknesses? You know, how do we kill these things? If we don't have, a, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, 11 around all the time, what do, what do we need to do to kill these guys? But yeah, (laughs) it's interesting that he's the only one of all of them that even thought we got to do this. We got to preserve this thing because that's what a scientist would do. Well, and leave it to Steve to just kind of go along with it. I mean, he's got this thing wrapped up. I love the the physical comedy of this moment is so great because Steve's like, he kind of slings the head into the flopping all over the place flops and it just doesn't fit and he's like you gonna help me (laughs) it's like yeah help him dustin yeah and it's great because he's like you're explaining this mrs byers all right i want to see that scene when they come home like yeah three days later from hopper's cabin and they see uh (laughs) she's like the kids are like what's for dinner mom um, you got eggos and demodog (laughs) frozen demodog and some eggos right hey it's meat (laughs) Right, meat is meat. <laughs> I don't know if intergalactic or interdimensional meat is probably the best for you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It could uh, could give you gas. Oh, okay. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Demo gas. Demo gas. <laughs> that's good. I like that one. Here is where Steve kind of becomes an adult. We mentioned last episode that Steve's not an adult because he doesn't know what molting is or other things that he's kind of absent-minded, but he's trying to be the adult here. He uses this okay sports analogy to describe the babysitters club here as like the, the B squad or the, the backups and they're letting the starters do the job. And I, I love the rhythmic dialogue here as well, where the kids are talking about a way to help L out and Steve just keeps interjecting. Maybe if we set this on fire. No, yeah, that's a no. The mind flayer would call away his army. They'd all come to stop us. Hey. And then we circle back to the exit. Guys. By the time they realize we're gone, L hey. would be at the gate. Hey, hey, hey! Steve has turned into a dad. <laughs> or like a coach, you know? Like it, Yeah, true. He's kind of, it seems like he's uh, sort of channeling one of his coaches and the way mm-hmm. he got their team 
into kind of whip them into shape for the big game or something. And I loved Mike's yeah. <laughs> Mike's response, which is so perfect for who he is as a character. This isn't a stupid sports game. Like it's like <laughs> it's so perfect for somebody that knows nothing about sports because it's yeah. a sports game. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking he was going to say sports ball or something, but he said yeah, sports yeah. game. <laughs> I mean, it's not inaccurate, but he probably, if he knew, oh, Steve plays basketball, he said he could have said this isn't this isn't a basketball game, Steve. You know, like it, it's just so funny how he says sports game. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> He's clearly part of the AV club. So yeah, there we go. That's definitely an AV club member's <laughs> response to that. Yeah. In the middle of all this, Billy shows up. This is interesting. Max says, "Quote." He can't know I'm here. He'll kill us. I want to be sympathetic to that. Yeah, and yet yeah. she and the rest of the crew are at the window looking out. I guess because you're sixth graders, you don't have a lot of maybe common sense when it comes to that kind of stuff, or you're just overly curious. But clearly, Max, you were not thinking straight when you were like, he can't know I'm here, yet I'm going to peek out the window. Or just have the other kids peek out and tell you what you see. Like, you, Max, should not be peeking out the window. (laughs) Yeah. So Steve comes out, and he's trying to be the big boss, or at least match wits with Billy. And I think he does a good job at the very beginning. But his verbal slamming is not enough for... Billy's actual slamming as he throws right. him to the ground and says, I told you to plant your feet. As he is a reminder from, from his little basketball lesson in the shower or pre-shower. <laughs> and then Billy yeah. walks in and attacks Lucas. So we get full-on anger Billy here. It doesn't get as awkward as Billy's dad kind of wailing on him, but it does get somewhat dangerous. But Lucas isn't scared. Like he just jacks him right in the gonads, <laughs> just to <laughs> yeah. be blunt. And it barely phased him, which is like, this guy is tough. All throughout this scene, I think Billy is a Terminator, honestly. <laughs> like nothing <laughs> seems to phase him. Yeah. Steve sort of comes to the rescue and starts beating on Billy. And Billy's like, <laughs> <laughs> looks like you got some fire in you after all, huh? Yeah, Like, he's just getting more, like, energy from this. And maybe he's channeling, like, when his father would beat him when he was younger. Maybe he's maybe he's been beat so much that it's almost like he's been waiting for a chance to fight back. And he can't fight yeah. back against his dad, clearly, because that's not going to end well. So now he's like, yeah, yeah, keep hitting me. So mm-hmm. it, it kind of makes sense, you know, with what we've sure. recently learned about his uh, home life. But yeah, it's brutal. I mean, he really pummels Steve, which is oh, kind gosh. of a parallel to the first season when Jonathan and Steve fight and Steve also gets <laughs> pummeled by Jonathan. So for the muscle <laughs> of the party, he gets beat up a lot. He really does. He really does. I'll include that with my predictions. Like what's the buyer house going to be decorated with next season? I'm going to say right. who's going to pummel Steve next season. <laughs> right. He's a little punching bag. But he takes it. I mean, he, he does. He does. As he's getting beaten, Max sort of says, nope, that's enough. So she finds the feel-good medicine uh, in the syringe and stabs Billy with it. And it almost as if, like, he's a T-Rex and just doesn't even, like, oh, this feels great. You know, like, it's, are are you going down? Do we need to just (laughs) stick you with, like, four more of those? (laughs) Yeah, it's not enough for Billy. You know, Billy needs a double dose. (laughs) (laughs) super billy like super shredder he's like super billy (laughs) i mean i guess it could make sense that they were giving uh you know they probably had measured out a dose for 
a smaller child like uh, Will, right? And so here's Billy, probably twice his weight or more. And so, yeah, it, it probably wouldn't affect him as, I mean, I don't even know what they're shooting him up with, but, but, you know, medication like that is based on weight. So it clearly didn't knock him out instantly, but he was, he was incapacitated. You know, he was lying and he couldn't move, but he was still conscious. Yeah. yeah. It's probably the ketamine, the horse tranquilizers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> After that, Max finds the nail bat and threatens Billy with it. And, eventually grabs the keys and says, let's get out of here. Let's roll. Yeah. Now they got a car. Yeah. And that's a defining moment for Max where she is standing up to Billy. I think she's finally had enough. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, he doesn't say the exact same thing, but I think in a similar way, she makes him repeat something like his dad did to really show this ultimate submission. Of course, he's like halfway drugged. Right. But I thought that was pretty significant. And I think that was a big moment for her to say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. You're not going to be controlling of me. So good good for you, Max. And I think it's also the beginning of a turning point for like Mike and the guys there kind of saying, okay, she's kind of cool. We, I think we can let her in, you know, we can let her into our party. And uh, she further proves that as the episode goes on. Yes, she does. (laughs) Back at Hopper's cabin, Nancy and Jonathan and Joyce are setting up the cabin with those space heaters that we saw earlier and a roaring fire to make things nice and Nice and warm in an nice attempt to quote, heat out the hive yeah. mind. That's, I don't think that was a quote, but that's my quote. So I'm putting it in quotes. <laughs> so heat them out. Yeah. And then we're back at, uh, at Hawkins lab. And so Elle is actually back for the first time since she escaped. I was reminded of this because of the flashbacks that she was having. Right. I'd forgotten that she actually had not been back to Hawkins since she escaped because she never went to my recollection from season one. She never went back to. No, Hawkins we lab. as the audience have, gone back multiple times uh hopper and joyce have gone there will has gone back multiple times to see dr owens but yeah i mean l has clearly been in hiding or unwilling to come anywhere near that lab after what she had gone through she has this facial expression like this look of determination yeah and i think it's reinforced by some flashbacks but she is clearly grown up and she's like i'm ready i'm gonna do this so we're supporting you. We support yeah, you from she's afar, Elle. <laughs> not the same timid little girl that first escaped in the beginning of season one. I think she's yeah. she's ready to go back and ready and also realizing that the bad people that were there are, <laughs> are all dead. There's a much yeah. greater threat, actually, that is more terrifying, but she might be the only person alive that can stop it. And then we're back in Billy's car. Steve is just jacked up beyond any kind of (laughs) facial recognition it looked like. He doesn't know where he is. And I think it's so funny how Dustin is trying to comfort Steve, but really keeping it real as well. Hey, buddy. It's okay. You put up a good fight. You kicked your ass, but you put up a good fight, buddy. Okay? You're okay. Okay. You're going to keep straight for a half a mile. Dustin's not going to mince words. He's going to be a friend to Steve. He's not going to coddle the guy. I also like that Steve's rocking some really colorful band-aids in this scene. This is nice. I think it was sort of find what you can at yeah, the uh, at the buyer house and rainbows and unicorns. I don't. I, I paused it to try to figure out if there was a specific pattern, but they were very colorful, is what I saw. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's whatever's available, you know. Did you notice a little bit of an Indiana Jones little nod? I had. Yeah, I totally saw this. The short round Temple of Doom. Yeah. I don't know if it's a reference. I don't know if it's just a coincidence. But yeah, Max had the little wooden blocks 
strapped around something like that feet you know so she could reach the pedal and it's true you know it's hard enough to drive if you're that age i mean but yeah you can't she's not a very tall person she's she's not going to be able to reach those pedals i i thought that was a really smart little thing that they took the time and a really quick cut to show you because yeah she clearly wouldn't be big enough to reach those pedals uh, at her age and at her size two questions i have one I'm guessing that the car is an automatic, not a standard, because if you can't reach the pedals, I don't think you know how to drive a stick shift. I'm just making no, no. I, I don't think. Uh, yeah, yeah. You and you need to be able to use both feet. You would have to have a wooden box strapped to both feet, clearly. <laughs> and I don't think that was the case. So she was just. I believe she was just pressing the gas. That was all she had to do. Yeah. And I think the second observation I'm going to make is that I'm predicting that they did peel out from a stop. <laughs> And then take off. So we did get that, even if you yeah. didn't see it. Duffers, I know you did it in your heads. So I'm going to count yeah. it. They did it in this episode. I mean, they're kids. They're going to go as fast as they can. To hit mailboxes and whatever. <laughs> Turn yeah. right. Do this. Turn right. <laughs> I would not want to be in that car with them. No. But thankfully, there was like not a single car on the road. So at the very least, there was, I mean, there are obstacles, trees and woods and everything are all around them. But there wasn't like anyone else on the road at this whatever hour this is. So they weren't uh, likely to be hit by another car. That's that's one one positive. Everybody Hawkins is in their beds sleeping quietly. Yeah. Well, what time is this supposed to be? I mean, is this the middle of the night? I mean, it's... (sighs) 10 and midnight. I mean, it's nighttime, duh, but (laughs) it's not. It's small town America, so not stuff isn't open, you know, and most people aren't going to be out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think people would notice that the power went out. So I think it's probably closer to, you know, two or three in the morning because nobody else is around. But I don't think the Duffers care at this point because they're like, nobody in Hawkins matters except these kids and these adults (laughs) that we're hanging out with. And we're that same way. We're like, who cares, Hawkins? Yeah. You'll find out in the morning when you wake exactly. up from your slumber. <laughs> well, meanwhile, at Jim's cabin, uh, Will wakes up and starts freaking out appropriately enough. Jonathan, this is the thing that stuck out to me in this scene. Jonathan is insanely upset. Like he has to turn away and be held by Nancy because his relationship with Will is so tight that I think he just, he knows what needs to be done. But the way that Will is just absolutely just going almost insane he is visibly upset about it. And that just kind of broke my heart because he knows he can't do it. He knows he has to do this, that they have to do this. And the opposite happens with Joyce. She looks at Will. She thinks about Bob and she turns that heat up, man. She's just like, you're getting out of my son. She don't care. They could have, and they have in other movies, they could have had his voice change. So it's clearly not Will's voice anymore, but they didn't go that route. They still have Will, Noah, the the actor, performing all the 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 lines, so it feels like you're you're still hearing him. And mm-hmm. as a mother, as a brother, like that's that will be the hardest part is to to be able to differentiate. Like, no, that's no longer my son in there. That's somebody else screaming, whoever this is, and I have to ignore that and ignore the the sort of temptation to make them stop and to make my child stop screaming. It's clearly not Will. I mean, Will is screaming, but it's Will's not in pain from the heat, or maybe he is, but it's it's this other entity that's taken over his body. That, And so, right. yeah, so the mom, uh, Joyce, clearly gets that at this point. She's like, my, this isn't my son. My son 
is in there, but I have to do everything I can to release him. Yeah. Just shows off more of her like maternal power, her internal right. power. And again, as we said, <laughs> how much she's changed and how much she's mm-hmm. matured. Like this, mm-hmm. the Joyce of season at the beginning of season one would be freaking out right now and not sure. knowing what to do. And probably and probably letting the ropes off of him, probably untying him because she right. just didn't believe or she wouldn't be able to get past that. So just good growth for, for Joyce overall yeah. at yeah. this point. And then we kick back over to Billy's car. They've landed at the hole where all the crazy stuff has kind of manifested itself, kind of <laughs> hopper part two, you know, right, by the right. by the pumpkins. It was like the 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 junction point, I think, where all the yes, yeah, all the various tunnels intersected. Yeah, yeah. And Max is really kind of flying to that destination in the car. She stops, and at this point, she just basically proves that she deserves to be part of this crew. Yeah. And she says, "I told you." Zoomer. Like, yeah. <laughs> she's giving herself a, an identity there, which I yeah, think is yeah. great. And this is, again, as I mentioned, where I think the boys, especially Mike, she finally got their respect. Love the uh, the makeshift outfits they got here with the, the bandanas around the mouth and then the swim the masks goggles. and goggles yeah. kind of covering them. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you got to take what you can get. They, they don't have yeah. Hawkins Lab radiation suits. Hazmat to, suits, to, yeah. They, they yeah. Got, yeah they're, they're, they're making do, and yeah. hopefully those spores down there are... Not too deadly. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. Before they go down, Dustin gives this great speech to Steve. He says, A party member requires assistance, and it is our duty to provide that assistance. Now, I know you promised Nance that you would keep us safe. So keep us safe. And then he hands him the bat. It is on like <laughs> Donkey Kong at this point. <laughs> even exactly. If, even if Steve doesn't believe it, he's like, all right, well, now we're in it. I really don't have a say at this point, so let's just go down the hole. And and I like how after that, he kind of says, okay, I'm leading the way. Like, he kind of takes charge. Like, it's like he realized this is happening one way or the other. So I'm, as the oldest, I might as well just take the lead. And I just want to add that he bounced back pretty quick from a few moments ago, being absolutely pummeled by by Billy and just waking up in the car he was he's like ready to go he's like i'm fine <laughs> let me out great him. observation yeah yeah i think the uh i think the adrenaline kicked in and he was like totally i gotta do it so just push through the pain this felt a little bit like a goonies moment with brand yeah. who doesn't know mm-hmm. everything and coincidentally i think this is why i kept calling mike mikey because i was thinking <laughs> thinking goonies through this and sure i felt like we got a little little goonies moment good stuff there good job duffers even if you didn't mean to you did mean to <laughs> anyway, yeah. back at Hawkins' lab, I was questioning, we don't see them go through the entrance. I'm assuming they did. Are we to assume that Bob's body at the entrance is still there or that it's been completely eaten or taken away? Because we don't even revisit that moment. Like, they didn't go back for the body. When we saw Bob's body last, it was being devoured by the demodogs. So my guess is that it was just completely devoured or carried away. I would think that there'd be even just this one moment where they'd pass by and they'd see the body, even if it's a body double, it's not Sean Astin. Right. But I would think that a death that important would have some kind of like moment. So I'm, I'm guessing that they just said, you know what? They just took it away or they just ate it. 
Yeah, I think the uh, demo dogs are not picky eaters. I bet they ate every last bit of Sean Astin. <laughs> <laughs> or, as you said, it's possible that they, and not just Sean Astin's character, but all the guards and scientists, that they were just dragged True. down into the pit below the, the lab where they continued to uh, you know, be ripped apart and, and fed to the baby demo dogs, perhaps. I don't know. Um, it's like a, like a mother bird, you know, bringing it, its its chicks dinner. It's possible, right? But yeah, I, yeah, my my interpretation was the same that most likely that all of these dead people were were fully eaten. Uh, I guess their clothes as well. <laughs> Good fiber in those clothes, yeah. man. Just a, a really nice yeah. there. <laughs> or, or there's just going to be like piles of demo dog poop with clothing in it <laughs> all over like that's Bob the newbie's demo? blue jeans yeah it's <laughs> <That's> terrible <laughs> or no he wasn't wearing blue jeans he was wearing like scrubs he was scrubs yeah he was yeah. wearing scrubs yeah, yeah. <laughs> but maybe he had a radio shack receipt that they're spitting at like this is gross right. we don't like that either. right they should have found his wallet yeah. <laughs> so many places you could go with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one guy was not eaten, and that was Dr. Owens, who I realized that up to this point I've called him Dr. Owens, so I apologize for that. There's and more than one of I him. Can't That's why it's Dr. Owens. So many, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dr. Owens what? It's a possessive. <laughs> Owens is possessive. That's what I was doing. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So when they find him... Hopper is, I love this. He's so cool. He, he basically is comforting him, but also making it easy. By the way, this is L and I don't remember the specific dialogue, but he basically insinuates, this is the girl who has all the powers. What I'd like you to do is we'll rescue you as long as you allow her to live a normal life instead of being a science experiment. And then he basically like tightens the, the gurney or whatever it is around his leg to stop the bleeding, but also to kind of give him a little punishment. Like I'm in charge now. Right. You can go back to wherever it is you go to because L is under my protection and I'm making yeah. it public. I'm making it known. Yeah, and I, I like when he does tighten that tourniquet. I don't know if it was his belt. I'm not sure because Dr. Owens had a pretty nasty leg wound in, I guess, in like the stairwell. And Hopper hands him a gun and he says, now don't go anywhere. And I loved how Paul Reiser kind of looked up at him and kind of chuckled, but in pain. Like there was a great little <laughs> moment there because he kind of was like, yeah, yeah, I'm clearly not going anywhere. But it was a good, it was a good moment because it was, it, yeah. like you said, there was this understanding. Like, yeah, I got your back with L. Just go close that gate and come back and get me. And yeah. Things will be fine. <laughs> you know, it is interesting that Hopper's pretty good at making these uh, kind of deals with the, with shady government people <laughs> he did it for real in the last for real season and here yeah. again so he's uh, got a That's... special knack for staying alive and keeping the people that he cares about alive as well that's his superpower yeah it is <laughs> that and smoking him and joy share that superpower so then we move back to the tunnels dustin gets spit on and at this point i think something seriously is going to happen oh, yeah. to him. like he's... he is Absolutely freaked out. Love that shot, by the way. I love the overhead shot, him looking up, and then something out of a video game where it just basically kind of rears back and then spits on him, and he just goes crazy. I believed him. Everybody else believed him, and then he was like, I'm okay. Uh, 
He's like, and I'm, like and I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. Yeah, he realizes. I think he was just like terrified. I yeah. mean, you know, you think it's like aliens, the acid, you know, spraying mm-hmm. at you. That's what your where your mind goes. Who knows? Like maybe, maybe he was infected with something that we don't even realize yet. But uh, oh, hopefully, hopefully that that cloth bandana and those goggles with the nose, you know, protector. Hopefully that was enough <laughs> to uh, <laughs> shield him from whatever grossness shot out at him. I mean, that was the same thing that shot at Hopper, right, earlier in the right. season. And what did it do to Hopper? Did it just, like, knock him out? Did it just, like, incapacitate him momentarily? I think it was really more of a di- distraction or a detractor. Oh, okay. I don't think it had yeah. any kind of chemical reaction okay. because he hasn't shown any residuals. Now, right, right, that's right. something that I'm going to keep in the back of my head of, like, all right, Dustin and Hopper have both gotten sprayed with this stuff. Right. Are they going to mutate next season? Is that what's going to happen? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. My yeah. friend Adam is great about not telling me anything that's happening I, in the I mean, seasons. I, my, so I, uh, my initial thought was it's some kind of, something that causes paralysis so that the demodogs yeah. could they come and have dinner, you know, like it just incapacitates you. But clearly that's not the case. So we'll have it's to ask Adam to later. When... Yep, we will. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Uh, they find the hub and then start to spray it with gasoline, different things like that. Now, this next section, Adam, is like wild because we are jumping in these three scenes, Hawkins Lab, Hopper's Cabin, and the tunnels. And so much is happening. And this is something we've talked about before where when things are happening simultaneously, this is where it's really interesting to see the energy just pick up because all of this is happening in the course of maybe like a minute or two right? before right. we get to the big kind of like, let's close the gate. So we have Will really freaking out at this point at Hopper's cabin. He actually starts choking Joyce. And you mentioned earlier that just a few minutes ago in the scene, his voice didn't change. I thought that his voice did change at some point while he was yelling, but that may have been when he was tied up in the shed. So I might be getting my episodes mm. mixed up. So yeah. if I'm I'm wrong, I apologize. Or, and, yeah, I'm, I may have missed something too. I mean, it's possible. But there was a physical change in him. They had the the veins that were turning green. Nancy points that out, but that's when he starts choking Joyce. And then Hawkins Lab, Hopper goes to investigate the radar room that feels a lot like the kitchen from Jurassic Park. I'm like, oh my gosh, are the Dimmodogs going to jump up on a table and attack him? I don't know. I thought that was kind of cool that he's using the, the knife to see. I couldn't really oh, tell. Yeah what was happening, but it's kind of cool. And appropriately enough, that knife's not very big. I don't know how you could get that reflective in a dark room like that, but whatever, you know, it's movie magic. Yeah. You know, and there's one little moment here right before he does that. I I just want to point out because Hopper and Al are obviously going down this dark hall. They see the radar room and (laughs) Hopper says, L stay here. He moves forward thinking, you know, I'm that he's going to protect L. And it's just, again, Hopper's got, you know, a gun, which clearly did very little previously by any of the guards to stop these things. Who's protecting who here? L's, L yeah. could just break one of their necks, like, with her mind. And so Hopper still thinks, you know, he's he's kind of in charge. And I think she realizes that it's really the other way around. Yeah. It, and we know that. We're just like, yeah. all right, don't, don't die, Hopper, because, yeah. you know, <laughs> you're so close to closing the gate. Stay behind <laughs> her, you know? Yes. <laughs> That's... Yeah. <laughs> She just puts her hand up and you're good. You don't need yeah. to point anything. Let her point her hand. It's all good there. And then back in the tunnels, the party lights up the tunnels. This is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the fire's going. And then the fire's going at Hopper's cabin. 
Will is in full exorcist here. Like he is yeah, being totally depossessed at this point. <laughs> I was expecting his head to turn around. I mean, it was it was very much, I think, a, a tribute to exorcist at this point. And I, I have a question because my takeaway here is that if the team had not gone down, if Steve and company had not gone down into the tunnels and not lit that junction point on fire, that perhaps Will would not have been released because the heat was not enough. But by burning this very important section of those tunnels where everything is interconnected, it's like that was the uh, extra push they needed to cause such pain that this shadow creature monster had to leave Will's body. That's kind of my interpretation of this. I I like that interpretation. That makes a whole lot of sense because it reinforces the fact that it's not just a one-man show. It's not just Al. It's not just Hopper. And I think it reinforces the antithesis of what Steve was saying, that they're not on the bench. They're part of the starting lineup. They are part of the crew, and they need to do this. What they thought was extra credit was really the thing that was needed to help push Will's exorcism over the line right not just distract the demodogs which is what exactly. was their main reason for doing it but that it had this sort of extra side effect that they didn't realize but turned out to be crucial to saving you know their best friend again yeah so hopper attacks the radar room and i almost expected him to just yell as he was doing that like <laughs> i'm gonna take it on but that would not be in character for him even though i wish it would be Joyce, back at Hopper's cabin, says probably my favorite line. I say my favorite. One of my favorite lines. Get the hell out of my son. <laughs> like, this is this is Mama Bear 10.0 at this point. Yeah. She, I mean, she is full on. Just, uh, I love the energy. And then back in the tunnels, the tunnels are on fire. The Demodogs head towards the tunnels. And then we see back at the cabin that he, put those air quotes again because I love them. Uh, he leaves Will and goes to the sky, like this smoke thing. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it just leaves. I don't think it's going specifically to any place. I think it's just a spirit that was embodying will, and now it's kind of dissipated. That's my interpretation of it. Yeah, I mean, we're not really given a lot of information at this point. Like, does it go back to the gate, or is it just out in our world now and looking for a new host? Like, the, these are all sort of open-ended questions at this point but hmm. I, I just yeah. Uh, yeah i mean the only, the only thing i'll add is yet again i mean they wake will up but yet again will poor will he's just been through so much and he is going to be so messed up later in life <laughs> all of this <laughs> i mean it's just this kid is so. this is a request to the duffers having already created season three Please don't let Will be the host of anything. Let let it go to somebody else. Let him be the hero for a change. You know, yeah. Let, yeah. let him hold that uh, hold a, a weapon or a nail bat. <laughs> or Get a candelabra, revenge. you know, yeah. whatever it is, whatever he needs to do. BB gun, anything. Just something, not a demon or yeah. a demo smoke or whatever we're calling that thing. <laughs> right. Interesting you say that, though, Adam, and I'm wondering... When you say things like that, it makes me think, is he pulling it from knowledge that he is it from his now memories or from his later memories or earlier memories that <laughs> this, this idea of when that smoke thing, when that possessed, whatever leaves him, it doesn't go back. It goes into the sky. Right. So right. it does make me wonder, okay, that's something that might be a, maybe you're throwing a MacGuffin my way, but I'll keep that in the back of my head. That I'm trying mm, okay, to uh, share my, I'm trying to go back to when I first watched this season 
and mm-hmm. share my thoughts as they were back then. So I'm trying not okay. to be uh, sort of influenced by post-season two knowledge <laughs> that yeah. I may or may not possess. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather you be possessed by that than a smoke monster <laughs> yeah. that's trying to take over the universe. Me too. Anyway, yeah. Jonathan contacts Hopper and he just says, close it. And then we're back at the gate and this is where... Things are still high energy, but they slow down a little bit. We get some moments with uh, the different characters. Here at the gate, Hopper and L descend to the abyss. I think it's a great shot. And they're holding hands against the backdrop of like the bright red and orange open gate. That's I love the design here, Adam, of the, yeah, the threads. so good. And how it's almost like it's going to break. And the shadow of that insane kind of smoky monster thing behind it like oh man the god of the underworld the god of the upside down is sitting behind yeah, like what to just bust what it. is it i mean that's, that's yes like, and why hasn't it kind of come through yet the, yeah these are the questions i again going back to my first viewing that these are the questions that i had you know what is this thing why can't it come through fully and what would happen if it did these are all right the things that, that i think we're meant to be asking Back in the tunnels after the fire's been set, everybody starts running away. Mike gets caught in the tentacles, but he's quickly released. And at that point, Dart shows up. And I had such a mixed reaction to this <laughs> moment. And I think it's because I sent you a picture offline uh, earlier today or yesterday of my dog, who's like black, <laughs> a three-year-old fun, part pit, part blue healer. And she's just so precious and long and I look at her and I just keep saying, there's my demodog, which is really not appropriate because demodogs are bad and right. they want to eat cats. And I have a cat and I'm like, don't eat my cat. But this moment with him is sort of bittersweet because I think Dustin looks at him and he's like, I don't want to keep this because I know what you're capable. I know that you're evil. I know you're possessed and you're a minion of this darker thing that wants to take over the world. So I never expected him to try to say, let's rescue Dart. Let's take him with us. But at the same time, he makes amends. You know, he puts the nougat down, which I think this is probably the only good use of nougat in the <laughs> world is to really satisfy demodogs. But he says, I'm sorry about the storm cellar. No, it's a pretty douchey thing to do. And then, like a dog, the animation here, I would think that the production folks who were designing these creatures and having them move around looked at dogs, looked at mm-hmm. how they moved, and you feel like this is a dog, like this is a, a canine that you sort of want to care for, but you know you can't. And he leaves, and he says he says goodbye. He said, see you around, Dart. And that's it. Now, I'm, I'm yeah. glad that Dart, what we see is that Dart didn't get burned up. He just kind of died when... What happened happened that we'll get to. Yeah. But it was yeah. kind of sad for me because I kind of wanted a little redemption, but I knew that that couldn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Two things. One, Dustin always comes prepared for on his adventures with snacks. I mean, the fact that he brought snacks that. Snacks coming through. Three musketeers. <laughs> hey, it could have saved their lives. So he he's a prepare too, just in a different way than uh, Lucas, as we've discussed in previous episodes. And I didn't notice this previously, but Dart has uh yellow markings on his kind of hind quarters i was thinking like how does he know that's dart and it's like oh he's got some kind of yellow markings on his uh back leg that must be how dustin knew that this was dart and not one of the other demodogs and i thought that was interesting it kind of reminded me of like again gremlins where you know you have your your mogwai the cute one the nice one but it can you know then you have the ones that are you have stripe 
who has the the very distinguishing white hair on the top. And, uh, you know, I thought, like you, maybe this is the good one, right? Maybe this is the Mogwai and all the other gremlins are the are the other demodogs. And maybe they'll make this demodog part of the party down the road. That would have been silly, clearly. But they went, I think what they did was the most logical, the most realistic in that they just had to they that dustin had to come to realize that this is not a pet and even if they shared a few moments together when (laughs) dart was a baby that this was uh that was perhaps not the best decision on his part and they needed to part ways but again maybe it saved their lives because if he hadn't raised dart from a young age and didn't know he liked nougat (laughs) maybe they would have been eaten by dart so it all works out yeah and he did mention the last episode how he recognized Dart at oh, one he did? point because oh, he, he yeah he did on the on the railroad tracks he had talked about how he had a distinct mark on his like a yellow mark on his butt that's how he knew it was got him. it okay yeah I, I guess yeah. I never noticed it on the you know the animation previously but yeah it was it was there mm-hmm. so back at the gate there's a flashback to the lost sister where she's being told you know channel your anger and it's different anger this time it's not yeah. Mike and Max. It's not the anger from her conversations with Hopper. It's it's about her time at Hawkins Lab, and it fuels her. Then we see the Demodogs are heading back to the lab. They actually pass by the party in the yeah. tunnels, so they're able to get out. And as Elle is continuing to close the gate, Hopper is like staving off all the all the Demodogs with his semi-automatic weapon, which appears to work uh, at least in a way to knock them off the the it, walls. Right, and at stuff least like gets that. them oh off from jumping onto the the elevator. Although I have to say, I think the shotgun was far more effective. It was just like actually blowing their their faces off. And I think perhaps shotguns are a better solution going forward uh, than than a rifle. So maybe that's the, uh, in in future Hawkins Laboratory, personnel should be carrying shotguns. If there was a a new iteration of Doom inspired by Stranger (laughs) Things, I think this would be a fantastic scene to to play out. It was, yeah. You have L behind you, and you're like, pow, 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 with all the all the or the whole like just running around like a dark Hawkins laboratory with the oh power yeah out with demodogs everywhere. I mean, that could be a pretty amazing game. Yeah, I'll let somebody Scary. else play that. I'll watch but, them. I'll watch yeah. them. I won't play that because <laughs> I want to sleep at night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so L's one on one. L versus him. She starts floating as she's sort of closing. The gate, there's this mysterious smoke. Maybe it's that smoke that we're seeing from that left Will. But she starts floating, and I'm wondering if this is a new manifestation of her powers where she can now float or now fly. That's going to be interesting if it is. Yeah, I mean, or maybe she just was so wrapped up in the task at hand that like she was just almost like in her own space where gravity didn't matter anymore. She was just channeling all of her sort of psychic powers. I did notice that she was using one hand, and then as she kind of kicked into overdrive, she lifted up her other hand, and that's when she closed it. So clearly, two hands outstretched is the key for Elle to uh, use maximum power. <laughs> yeah, maybe she floats, and then her feet start getting yeah. forward. Like she's got like all of your legs, all of your limbs right. have to be facing that's forward. To, exactly, to really pointing towards yeah. the the object that you're trying to uh, affect. Yeah. yeah. 
both nostrils were bleeding. So obviously the ears <laughs> need to start bleeding as well to really get <laughs> right. the full effect. So by the, by the end of this whole series, she's just going to be completely bled from her eyes, her ears, her <laughs> nose, her mouth. I mean, yeah. she's going to look gross, really yep. gross, but at least the gate and everything behind it is gone at that point. I mean, the gate's technically yeah. still there, just sealed up somehow. Like she kind of knitted it back together, the opening to the gate, but yeah. I guess it's still there. And as soon as she did that, everything tied or connected to this hive mind just started falling and, and dying, like including Dart. Which makes me wonder, because the episode kicks over to one month later in that right. epilogue that you were alluding to earlier. I'm asking the question, one, who cleaned up the buyer house again? Because clearly <laughs> it's clean again. As clean as it can be for a slightly <laughs> run-down place. And then... All the demodogs that fell from the lab and are in the tunnels, did they just get picked up? Did they get burned? We don't know. That never gets answered. So if I'm being pessimistic, I'm saying there's a lot of garbage underneath the town of Hawkins well, yes. that probably needs to be cleaned up. I think Dr. But, Owens, you know, made a few calls and, uh, you know, they got a bunch of refrigerators to stuff those demodogs into <laughs> for preservation purposes. And yeah. Yeah. I'd like to believe that somewhere on Dustin's wall, he's got Dart's head just sort of mounted. <laughs> he brings it into uh, uh, Mr. Clark and says, do you know anything about um, you know, stuffing? How, you know, if, can, we, uh, can you show me how to turn this into a stuffed head that I can mount on my wall? I mean, they've clearly got enough specimens lying around that they could do some science experiments in science class. Well, because yeah, at the very least, yeah. Kids, today we're going to be dissecting, not a frog, a demodog. Yeah, compound word. Demogorgon <laughs> dog. <laughs> That's Because yeah. Dustin's like at the front of class doing that with his hands. Right. He's like, <laughs> as you reach in the, the, uh, the abdomen, you're, you're, the first organ you're going to pull out is, uh, I don't know what that is. It's not a organ I've ever seen before. <laughs> oh, that's the third heart. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that would be an interesting science class. I'd like to visit that. I don't think any of that happens because the story that Murray and Jonathan and Nancy leaked or that Murray right. leaked with the help of those guys is out there. And what we see is that what they had planned to do actually happened where they gave the world or gave the news or the people a slightly more believable story. There's this fantastic moment with Murray. He's camped outside Hawkins lab laughing <laughs> yeah. as it's getting shut down. And I didn't notice the first time, but for note taking the second time, I didn't notice the soldier just flipping him off as he's driving by. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> That's that great. Really <laughs> and then, uh, then Barb gets a proper send off. Yeah. But, yeah. but who's in the coffin? They're so they didn't find her body. Yeah. I mean, they can't. It's in the upside down and will remain yes. there if it's not, if it hasn't been eaten alive by <laughs> uh, creatures on that side. But so, two theories. Maybe the government made a fake body of Barb like they did Will in the first season, possibly, yeah, if true. they had the ability to do so. Like if they had a good, good enough picture or information about what she looked like. Or it's possible, like people whose bodies are never discovered, they might just be holding a service with an empty casket you know, to, okay. to honor, to honor her. I mean, they do that. Like if someone goes missing you know, on nine 11, a lot of the, a lot of the bodies mm -hmm. were never discovered. Right. But they still, they still buried, they still had a funeral for those, yeah. for those individuals. So yeah, maybe they bury some of her personal effects, you know, something to kind True. of just 
say this is her this is her and there's a place they can go and see her in the graveyard true and third theory is maybe they just made up a demodog to look like her you know that gave it a nice yes. set of clothes lipstick or... yeah. like pair of glasses yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little little wig <laughs> it, it looks so a little like et you know when they when trick-or-treating exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we're so disrespectful to barb we love her, her parents you know. are like love- she really looks weird whatever happened to her <laughs> That chemical exposure did something <laughs> yeah. weird to her face. <laughs> this isn't this isn't our barb. <laughs> they're so they're so like strung out on KFC. They don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> I'm crying now. Yes. Okay, back back. We I, I kind of want someone. If anyone out there is a good illustrator, Photoshop artist, <laughs> yes. mock up a. Demodog for us wearing uh, a red wig, <laughs> glasses, and the barbs outfit. Yeah, yeah, a compound barb demodog <laughs> for Dustin to be a a barba demodog. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're so mean. Oh, wow, poor Barb. But this does lead me to one point: they are burying Barb or something. Mm-hmm. But where's Bob Doobie's burial. I mean, he was the hero of the season and clearly he died. And yes, again, maybe no body, but clearly he's missing. Everyone at Radio Shack is like, where did Bob Newby go? So it's not like he was some random guy. He's part of the community. Everybody knew him. Everyone knew that, that uh, he was dating Will's mom, right? So what happened? That was not resolved yeah. in this season, no. at least. Well, and you... You brought this same thing up last season, how everybody was celebrating Will's return, but everybody was like, what about Barb? Because she's right around. And of course, that got, that it, got it settled. Did, yeah, that season. became a central theme of, uh, of the, this season. Obviously, that, yeah. you know, what happened to her and why, where are her parents? And what, yeah. So they did resolve that, thankfully, with, with this season. Yeah. So, maybe so maybe season three will resolve Bob. Do. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll lose another person with the letter B and then yeah. that person will get resolved in four or, you know, it just, it's just a vicious cycle. Yeah. Things may not be looking good for, let's see, Billy. Billy. He's, he's yeah. the only B name I can think of right up the top of my head. With the first or they name. Could, yeah. Right. Or they could introduce a new character. That's the other thing. It seems like as they introduce new characters, they also have the potential to die. So uh, we'll see. Maybe there's somebody new. It, if there is a new character in season three, they may not be around for long. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you want to be on Stranger Things? Yes. For one episode? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, they uh, the episode moves a little bit further. Hopper meets up with Dr. Owens, mm-hmm. and he hands him a document. I think it's a birth certificate for yes. Jane, but her last right. name is Hopper. So are we to assume that... Jim has adopted her now. Is that the assumption? Yeah, I think that Owens made it so that Hopper is Elle's legal father now. And that's why he kept saying, wait a year before you kind of introduce her so that it's not like suspicious. But I think the idea is that after a year, he can sort of introduce 
his new adopted daughter to the world. Like, hey, everyone in, in Hawkins Police Force, this is my I adopted this young girl named Jane. She's my she's my daughter, and and hopefully it won't raise suspicions, right? It'll just feel sure. like oh, yeah, you know, he lost his daughter tragically to cancer, and you know, he decided he wanted to uh, adopt somebody, and no one has to know where she came from because she's legally his uh his child now on on paper right. and and dr okay. owens made made it all you know all happen so that it's all in the books that's that's what i'm taking away from this that makes sense yeah yeah and then hopper requests outside of that one year reveal that she get right. one night out and of course that leads to the snowball right and snowball everybody's dance. preparing and this is sort of a <laughs> a similar kind of preparation like we got in the halloween episode where everybody's getting dooted up yeah. Joyce is teaching Will how to dance. I thought that was kind of great. Jonathan's just overkill with the camera, as he is prone to do. But he's you know, <laughs> he's using the Bob's JVC. Mike is reluctantly getting his picture taken on the stairwell by Mom, who I'd like to believe is still having dreams of Billy. No, I'm just kidding. That's not <laughs> happening. Hopefully she finished her book. She probably did. I mean, it's a month <laughs> it's later, a month. so it's it yeah. doesn't look like it's that difficult to read. No. So, unless she specifically did it during bath time, in which case she'd probably have to. You know, oh right, Maybe with she two, just ki- three like kids a- and a lazy husband, yeah. you know, she'd have some time. She'd have to make time, have some new time there, girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lucas is um, practicing asking someone to dance in the mirror. Hey. Want to dance? We should, uh, you know, get out there. Like, do our thing. Stop. And that's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> and then his sister sees him. I love this song. You? Yeah, I love it. But not as much as I love you, Lukey. He says, get out of my room. But she's not really in your room, Lucas. She's at the door. So, mm. I mean... I mean, it's a logical. Yeah, I think it's just an invasion of his privacy, right? But do close your door, right? It's just like if you want to, you don't want people to see what you're doing. Yeah, close your door. Right. I'm nitpicking. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. (laughs) Max's mom is getting her ready. Um, We see Billy in the background, Mm -hmm. and I really feel like we have some mutual respect going on here. He kind of looks at her. He stops. There's no nod. There's no smile. There's just a okay, and then he moves on. Don't know what he's thinking. He's still a mystery. He's maybe a less mm-hmm. angry mystery. Maybe he's still angry. Maybe he's still on ketamine. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we just we're we're led to believe that I think some things have changed where he can no longer beat up Max right. uh, when he's being beaten up. He can't retaliate mm-hmm. with her. So I think that there's a little bit of maybe some positivity there. I hope there is. Yeah, I think so. And then finally we get to Dustin, who is the king of all folks getting ready. This is probably <laughs> yeah. the best of the montage. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's a new cat in the house named Tews, T-E-W-S, which I believe is a, putting the hands together, compound of Muse 2. Yes. Or two Muse. Maybe two Muse. a second. Yeah. I don't know. I think it would make more sense to be Muse the second or yes. Muse the sequel. But sure. Or it could be Terry Muse. That would be funny. But that he wasn't really <laughs> famous back then. So <laughs> <laughs> he gets his own stocking. So apparently he's got some love already in the house. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Dustin is uh, frantically looking for something. And it turns out to be what? 
oh yeah, Farrah Fawcett hairspray. And I just kind of put my hands up in the air saying, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Yeah. He's taking Steve's advice. You know, this is all thanks to Steve. Yep. And Steve drives him to the dance. So clearly the bromance is in full effect here with, with Steve and Dustin. It's almost like, uh, yeah, it's almost like Steve is taking Dustin under his wing, like a, like a big brother mentor yeah. kind of situation, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. Of all the kids, of all the younger boys, somehow these two, these most unlikely of friends have, have sort of mm-hmm. found each other. And it's yeah. just, it's, it's very charming. I think it's, it's great. Yes. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. Very charming. So he gets to the, the dance and his hair is in full kind of half <laughs> so flock ridiculous. of seagulls. It's yeah. like a curly flock of seagulls haircut there. But uh, <laughs> he's not getting any crap from Steve about it. Steve says, Now you're going to go in there. Yeah. You look like a million bucks. Yeah. And you're going to slam down. Like a lion. Uh, don't do that, okay? And, and hopefully he won't ever again. No, hopefully he won't. <laughs> we find out he doesn't. He doesn't. When he walks in, he sees Mr. Clark, and I love this little quick exchange. Who, you know, Mr. Clark, we haven't seen much of this season, but he, he, Mr. Clark says, Looking very snazzy tonight, sir. Thank you, my lord. <laughs> <laughs> great little, great little throwback. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's so good. And it's great because, you know, he he doesn't look at him weird like his friends do and try to mess with it. Like, he, Mr. Clark's like, it's great. You're looking good. Yeah. I affirm what you were doing, sir. <laughs> right. Before Steve leaves, I think he takes a look and he sees that Nancy's at the punch bowl. Oh, serving, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, pure fuel is what she describes it as. <laughs> but the look that he gives is, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier. He looks at her and I think... <sighs> It's a hard kind of description. I think he's not satisfied, but he's not upset either. He's like, hmm. And then he leaves. And so yeah. I don't think he's over her, but I think he is pausing for now. Like, I think I could be wrong, but I think that he sort of paused that relationship. And I think that that's, we're given sort of the permission to explore her and Jonathan's relationship at, at right. this present moment. Yeah, like I said earlier, I think he's accepting of the fact that maybe they just aren't meant to be together, even mm-hmm. if even if he wishes they could be. I think he's right. just realizing that maybe maybe she doesn't feel quite the same about him the way he does about her, and he can't force that. You can't force someone to love you or care for you, and so he's smart enough to know when to fold them, and I think he's he's kind of doing that here. So then there's a wide shot of the middle school dancers dancing. And I knew I remember this, man. I mean, middle school <laughs> totally. dancers, we could not dance. We could just sway back and forth. The, the white person dancing yeah. by everybody. Yeah, that was that was what you did. And when you have slow dances like time after time, that's all you can do as a it's middle school. <laughs> so awkward, you know. Yes. You just, uh, yeah, it's just a sl- And it's so awkward, too. When, and they do this perfectly in the scene where one pair goes off to dance and the remaining three are just standing there. Like, what do I do? Like, uh, I don't have anyone to do. And you're, you're looking around for anybody to, to like dance. Looking for the wallflowers, man. You're looking for the wallflowers. And, and the funny thing is he songed for like three, four minutes. So by the time you actually get someone to dance to that slow song, it's a song's like three minutes in and you're like, okay, well let's, well, maybe we'll get 30 seconds together before it wraps up. You know, this is why as a DJ, this is yeah. what I know. I've done some weddings before, very casually. I'm not like yeah. a pro by any means. So 
don't call me to do it unless you're going to pay me billions <laughs> of bucks. Anyway, you don't do just one slow dance. You do two or three. Right. Uh, at, at the very least, two, because you got to account for that. You got to account for the guy who's like trying to <laughs> figure out how to ask the girl out. Lucas does this perfectly with Max when he asks her to dance. Um, <laughs> it's awesome and yeah. awkward and funny and perfect and absolutely accurate. But you've got a couple of good songs. So you got time after time and every breath you take, right. which is appropriate for when Mike gets his moment with Eleven and they begin to dance. In fact, I think this is great with them because they both admit they can't dance, but they're both going to try together, which right. is just another precious moment. It's interesting that Will was asked to dance by a girl, and I can't think of her name at the moment. It's not somebody that we've really seen previously, but she calls him Zombie Boy. And I just thought, wow, that's so disrespectful that she, I mean, yeah, she's asking him to dance, but that's just really rude. Like she's basically calling him by <laughs> the name that the bullies call him. Yeah. And I don't know, just after everything he's been through, he deserves I, better. Be sure he does. <laughs> but you know, middle school girls are going to be middle school girls as yeah. we discover True. Um, with Dustin and his valiant attempt. Like he is, <laughs> I didn't yeah. think he was going to give up. In fact, I was just continuing to kind of give him more bonus points every time he would go up to, what looked like it was going to be an infinite number of girls. It turned out to only be two. There's this really wonderful moment where he is sitting there or standing. Nancy sees him and then she goes over and talks to him and he's crying. She asks him to dance. And then she says, no, out of all my brother's friends, you're my favorite. You've always been my favorite. Really? Yeah. And in some sick way, you could take that as like, that sounds creepy. But I didn't take it that way. And I don't think it was meant to be taken any way other than her validating who he was. I think she really did mean that. I, I, I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Mike's got some good friends. And I think that there's a lot about him that she respects. And so I think that she's giving him sort of that way to build up his, not only his confidence, but his persona. Because... Stacy is clearly jealous. Oh when yeah, she sees She's... when she sees them together, and uh, you know she says, "Girls this age are dumb, but give them a few years, no ways up. You're gonna drive me nuts. You think so? Oh, I know so. So I thought that was that was so cool. It really was, yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, in like the first episode of the first season, didn't Dustin kind of have a crush on her? Like, wasn't there a little just throwaway line about that at some point? I feel like there was, you know, like a kid who's kind of in love with his best friend's older sister kind of thing, that kind of, you know, situation. I mean, so, I don't know that I remember that, but yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if that, that was something in there. Well, it's kind of sad but, we didn't get to see Keith here hanging out with her. You know, because, you know, the, the date with Nancy, I guess, is not happening. According to what we're seeing here, Lucas did not come through with his, his deal. <laughs> That's, I think that'll have to be a, like a, its own spinoff series. Just Keith. Mm, yeah. Just all about Keith. Will they? Will, yeah. will they? Won't they? The misadventures of <laughs> Keith and Nancy. <laughs> it's right. mostly won't they. <laughs> so it's a short lived series of one episode where she says no. And five minutes later, the credits roll. <laughs> exactly. It's a short film, basically. It's. <laughs> Maybe I'll do that one. I'll do a short film called Will They Want They. 
hey, that actor might be available. I don't see him in a lot of other uh, projects, so he might be able to I'm sure if I get his contract, there'll be Cheeto puff like powder (laughs) all over it or something like that. (laughs) That was probably a stipulation in his contract. He's like, listen, I need to be eating Cheetos every scene that I'm in. Is that cool? And Duffer's like, okay, sure. You sure you don't want a cash bonus? No, I just want to eat Cheetos. An unlimited (laughs) supply of Cheetos. (laughs) Back up the truck of Cheetos to my house. <laughs> Meanwhile, um Hopper and Joyce are outside sharing a smoke and yeah. This is something that I was been thinking about most of the season. I've also seen this in television shows that I'm watching with my wife. The idea of smoking, are, are there techniques or are there props that allow you to smoke on screen without being a smoker? Are there Yeah, yeah, they they make non-nicotine okay. cigarettes, you know, like just for okay. So you can look like you're smoking, but you're not really inhaling any nicotine. So that's probably, unless they smoke, you know, it's possible that both of those actors smoke and don't care. But if they don't, then yeah, they have options (laughs) available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, I wondered that, that if you didn't have that option, if you would turn into a smoker. And I don't, I mean, of course, I'm not an actor, so I don't really know the extent to which you're going to do something to your body but i don't even like the idea of just inhaling smoke oh i I mean yeah i don't even want to be around smokers like in a restaurant if i if i can help it you know (laughs) it's like like even if there's no nicotine in it like i I used to smoke cigars i don't really do that anymore but just the idea of doing that a lot on screen especially if you have to do a scene over and over again even if there's no nicotine the idea of just inhaling that all the time i'm sure that's not good for your body, but no, no, I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just any smoke you breathe in is not ideal. But the the real thing that's bad for you clearly is the nicotine. I mean, that's the yeah the the thing that you want to try to avoid if if you <laughs> are smart. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so in that moment, Hopper says, "It's true what they say. Every day does get a little easier." Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, not in Hawkins, Hopper. Not in Hawkins. <laughs> right. <laughs> this town is cursed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did think it was a nice tender moment, him reaching out to her, asking her how she's doing. She's like, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. And I, I'd like yeah. to believe that the loss of Bob is going to have some residual effects in the next season. But I, I, feel like, I think this is a nice little coda for their relationship because – Really, they're where they were. They're good friends, and they care mm-hmm. about each other, and they're looking out for one another. So it's just sort of a reminder that no matter what happens to Joyce or what happens to Hopper, they'll always sort of have each other on on some level of friendship, right. which is important for both of them. They need each yeah. other in that regard. And it's a nice scene, too, because, it, again, it plays back to their backstory a little bit. They talk about how you know they used to sneak smokes in high school and— one of the teachers retired in the seventies. And so, you know, they couldn't get in trouble as a result of that. That guy's no longer around. So it's just a nice little bit of character development for who they were a long time ago. And, you know, obviously we've never, we don't see any of their backstory, but we get little tidbits here and there. And so from there we pan out, we see everybody's getting to dance Mm-hmm. Lucas and Mike get their awkward middle school kisses, which is yep. just, again, good acting or just what kids are, you know, they don't know how to kiss. It's just, it's just weird. Even as actors, it's got to be a little weird. I mean, I'm sure this, I would imagine that for all of these kids, the, this was their first on screen kisses as well. If not mm-hmm. both on and off screen, it's very likely. So it's going to look the way it looks, you know, awkward and because of the age. 
to go back to another Saved by the Bell reference, I was thinking about because <laughs> <laughs> I like Saved by the Bell. So shut up. No, it's like <laughs> I was thinking about one episode where Dustin Diamond had the pleasure of kissing Tori Spelling, his on-screen girlfriend, Violet at the time, and the way they kissed was just like that. It was just like not romantic at all. This is not right, something right. you're going to see in a Harlequin romance novel like Mike's mom is reading. <laughs> right. So it's a nice tender ending. And at the same time, no, it's not because we get the stinger. And I think I need to validate, but I believe, you know, every breath you take is still playing as the camera turns and we see the upside down version of the high school and the Mm -hmm. ominous music plays. And we get that great lightning and the shadow and the shadow monster is still there just lurking every breath you take. I will be watching you. I thought that was such a perfect way to finish it out where you have a slow dance in positivity and then a, using that same song for like, yeah. he's watching you. Well, and it's funny because it could be this, like you were saying earlier, how the first season ended in a way where it really could be a one and done season with a little bit of an open ended, you know, feel to it. This really could have been that way too. This does kind of wrap everything up. They close the gate. Everyone's kind of not happy per se, but everyone's moving on with their lives. And the little flip, a little turn, you know, shot, it just shows you, even though they're all moving on, the upside down is still there. It's not yeah. going anywhere. This other dimension still exists. And, and perhaps there are other ways for it to get back into our world. So it could have, you know, if, if this was, was the end, it would be a nice, a nice way to, to wrap it all up. And, uh, but as we know, it's not. So, <laughs> yeah, I think this feels more like we have a plan to move forward and we're going to move forward with it. This is a clear break point. Just like the last episode had a sort of mini break point in it with these two halves of that episode. You're right. I think that if it had ended with this moment, we just have the, Oh my gosh, it's still there. I know that because at the time of this recording, I know we don't do this a lot by saying, you know, kind of showing where we are in time. The fourth season has released. The fifth season has not but I have read the little that I've read is that the fourth season deliberately ends on a cliffhanger to set up the fifth season. Like it's not like the first two seasons and I'm assuming the third, I don't know yet. Right. It's, it's a little more of a, like, yeah, it's more of a, there's going to be one more season here and we're setting it up and it's all going to have to get resolved in the fifth and final season. I mean, it's not giving yeah. anything away. It's just saying that that they kind of tee everything up, and we all know that one way or the other, things will end <laughs> with this fifth and final season. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, I think that the ending is strong because it does give you some closure to everything that has happened thus far. But as you said, it leaves it very much open that, yes, they closed the gate, but they didn't defeat whatever this was, right? They didn't kill it. They just kind of stopped it from getting through or from continuing its uh, attack on Hawkins. So the threat remains, even if they've temporarily been able to block it. In one other last thought, too, is that, again, the season ends around Christmas time. You know, the snowball dance, you're hearing Jingle Bell Rock playing as they're getting ready. It's, uh, it's clearly Christmas time again. So they, they like to sort of wrap up these shows uh, around the holidays. So just like Die Hard is a Christmas movie, that Stranger Things is a Christmas TV show. So 
Great thing to watch with your kids on Christmas morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> that definitely brings in the holiday. Just cheer the, the just holiday. the end, just those two end coda scenes. That's it. You know, just yeah. Watch those. Yeah, that's good. Watch those. Like Twenty minutes <laughs> of TV. My wife and I recently watched. We're at this point in our marriage, um, loving the '90s dramas like 90210. Uh, we're now on Melrose Place because that's what makes our marriage happy. Is just watching. <laughs> trashy nighttime drama together but this particular episode of melrose place was a christmas episode and i told her do i need to add this to my to our christmas tv shows specials library that we have sort of uh tucked (laughs) away she's like no why would you want to do that i was like because it's a christmas episode right (laughs) and if it's self-contained fantastic like if i don't need to know about things happening before after the episode it feels pretty good but she's like no you don't need to do that i'm more of the i like the uh the the sick the Christmas sitcoms episodes those those yeah. are well that's what I'm enjoy. talking about yeah yeah the, the, those yeah. right there like Friends or Frasier or they, they, Wings they, yeah, feel good yeah yeah make you make you laugh yeah, yeah it's good stuff uh, to kind of tie in Paul Reiser to this one of the ones that to that point I always around Thanksgiving the week of Thanksgiving is I'll watch I think the first season of Mad About You where oh yeah he and his wife are on a train going to I think her parents or something like that and the whole the whole episode takes place on the train, but the first half takes place on the way to, and the second half takes place on the way from. And clearly, there's some stuff that happened during Thanksgiving <laughs> during, where yeah, that you didn't see. They're like yeah. angry at each other, and so it just <laughs> that's like good. it's tradition for me. The week of Thanksgiving, I'm watching that Mad About You episode. <laughs> nice, yeah. <laughs> Along with Hallmark Countdown to Christmas, but that's a different uh, discussion. And trains, together. planes, and automobiles, maybe. Yes, that's a good one. Yeah, recent. Yeah, recently watched that for the first time in the last couple of years. So, Oh, really? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the many blind spots that I have. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's one I've seen, you know, I don't know how many times over the past, you know, 30 years. Well, that's going to do it for us. We have beat this horse to death or this oh, dog to death when it comes to this final episode. <laughs> and, uh, it's good. It's been good. I think it's been worth the, the almost two hours of, of talking <laughs> and, laughing and all that good stuff. This has been a great season. I'm glad it didn't disappoint much like the last season. We'll definitely be continuing this series as the podcast moves on. So be sure to stay tuned uh, of when that will happen. And maybe sooner, maybe later. We don't know. Eventually we'll get to it. Yeah. Well, we'll, and I'll, and I'll say without giving anything away, the tagline for stranger things three, whenever we get to it is one summer can change everything. Oh, great. So. So, so now you know it's that's your only clue. It takes place in the summer. In the summer. Yeah. But it ends at Christmas. <laughs> that's, you know, wow. maybe they're changing Six things months. up for us. You know, they're, they don't Six want us months. to. Yeah. They're just going to keep backing it up where uh. it'll be like season four is like New Year's of like 1989. And it goes all <laughs> the way to Christmas of 1989. So it's like we're going to cover every holiday at some right. point. <laughs> All right. Well, be sure to check out our next conversation where we are going to be celebrating the world of long form storytelling. Until then, I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here. <laughs>